All right. Well, here we are. Lesson nine. We're finally to the end. Um, before we start in on, on the text, there's three things over on the table for you to pick up. I think you all picked those up already. Uh, the first is the questions for tonight. Uh, the second is a master outline of Colossians. So I've uh, changed the outline a number of times as we've gone, and uh, this is the final one that I came up with. I will probably change it the next time I study Colossians. Uh, so, but um, as I was thinking through um, finishing the, the, the book, I thought it might be helpful. I thought it would be helpful for me to have that all in one place. And, uh, and then I was thinking, well, if it's good for me, it's probably good for you too. So I figured I'd give that to you. Remember, the outline is not inspired. It's not authoritative. This is just a tool to help you understand Colossians. You're free to disagree with me uh, if you can show me why from the Bible. Uh, okay, so that's for you. It's online, too. Um, if you want an electronic copy of that, that's on the, the web page where all the resources are as well. I actually went back um, as I was putting this together. I thought, you know, I could do this for Micah, which is what we studied in the, sp uh, the spring. It's the fall, right? So in the spring. Uh, and so that, I don't think I put that on the website yet, but uh, I'd like to put that up as well. So it's about half as long. This one, I broke it down into like parts of verses because uh, I, I was going full out OCD when I put this together. So um, the Michael one is not quite as long, uh, but I, I can uh, get you that one as well if you want it. Uh, and then the third thing is a tentative schedule for what we're going to be doing in the spring. I want to talk a little bit more about that specifically when we get to the end, uh, kind of why we're doing this and what that's going to look like. Uh, so w when we finish up tonight, I'll spend a minute talking about that. All right? Okay, Colossians. We're in Colossians 4. We're right at the tail end of the, the body of the letter um, and, and Paul has been in this section where he's talking about the new life, uh, what, uh, on the basis of everything that Christ has done, everything that, uh, everything that Christ is, uh, we have total sufficiency in him for spiritual maturity, and uh, if we're not to, uh, to, to bow to and to embrace all of these things that are empty and insufficient, uh, and, and to embrace Christ alone, then what does that new life in Christ actually look like? And so we talked about the foundations of the new life and instructions for the new life. And then we started talking last week about these two examples that he gives of the new life in action. The first being the household. And so he, he, he revamps the way that, that, that uh, people would have uh, understood the, the roles of people in the household according to this new life they have in Christ. And now he's going to move and he's going to talk, he's going to end the body of the letter by talking about uh, how uh, we now relate to people who are outside of the church. How as those who have new life do we relate to those who do not have new life? And then verses 7 to 18 is the closing of the letter. Uh, and we'll, we'll look through some of the, the breakdown of that as we get there. So... Uh, as we get into to verses two, uh, two to six, um, the, the, the reality is that having this new life in Christ doesn't mean, as some have falsely assumed, uh, that we are to just come out of the world entirely and have no interaction with those outside of the church. And so there are some who want to get as far away from the world as possible, but I think they misunderstand. I think their intention is we want to be separate from sin, but in so doing, they, they separate themselves entirely from any kind of interaction with the world because they're afraid that they might, that they might catch the sin, uh, and, and in so doing, they remove the witness of the gospel from the world. So... Jesus, in, in John 17, specifically prays for his disciples. Uh, he, he asks that the Father, not that you will take them out of the world, but that you will protect them from the evil one. So there's an assumption that the Christians are going to be in the world. They're going to be interacting with people who do not have new life in Christ. 
uh, and that the, the goal is not for them to be taken out of that environment, but that in the midst of that environment, they would be kept from the evil one. Paul says very much the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. He's talking about church discipline. <clears throat> he's basically saying, you guys, th there's this Christian in your, or this person who professes to be a Christian in your church who's doing this terrible, wicked thing. You can't celebrate him for that. You need to put him out. You need to put him out of the church. You need to treat him like an unbeliever. Because I told you, don't associate with immoral people. Now he says, when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I did not at all mean the immoral people of the world, or the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. He says, when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I wasn't talking about the people who don't know Jesus. Because if, if I told you not to associate with anybody who is immoral and, and, and doesn't know Jesus, you wouldn't be able to talk to anybody right, except for other Christians. That's not what I told you, right? But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person. And so, so Paul is saying, if there's a person who professes to be a Christian and they're living in this way, then, then you put them out of the church so that they understand how serious it is what they're doing, that, they're, that their actions do not measure up to their profession of of faith. So there's an expectation that Christians uh, are going to be able to maintain their own holiness, but they're also going to have this significant interaction with those outside of the church. And so how are we to associate with people outside of the church? He's going to cover this in verses 2 to 6, but it's not an exhaustive uh, list. It's not... Um, uh, something where it's like this, this gives you every principle you have on how to interact with people who don't know Jesus, but it's got these three helpful points that we're to keep in mind as we interact with those who aren't Christians, All right? So uh, in this one, there's in this uh, verses two to six, there's kind of three big uh, commands or three big instructions, three big principles. Uh, the first is to pray for opportunities for the gospel. It's verses 2 to 4. In verse 5, live wisely so as to make the most of every opportunity. And verse 6, speak graciously as is appropriate to every opportunity. And that is on the back of your outline. So you can read it. I'm not going to repeat it. So, but first, verses 2 to 4, pray for opportunities for the gospel. So verse 2, he's going to cover just kind of a prayer in general. It says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. So three, uh, even within this verse, three instructions about prayer in general. Number one, be devoted. Two, keep alert. Uh, and three, an attitude of thanksgiving. So be devoted, be, uh, be alert or be watchful, and be thankful. It says be devoted. Um, prayer requires devotion, and devotion here probably means something like perseverance. Persevere in prayer. Don't give up on it. Be devoted to it. So we have a tendency, at least I do, to give up easily uh, when it comes to prayer. So Paul has to instruct the Colossians to be devoted to prayer, I think, because he knows it's hard and he knows our tendency. If the temptation to give up praying, to not persevere praying, uh, was not there, if that wasn't a temptation, Paul probably would not have had to command them to be devoted to prayer because it's something that would have come naturally, right? I don't, but Paul never commands people, make sure you eat dinner, right? Yeah, we got that one. He has to command them to be devoted to prayer. 
because I think he knows how, how hard it is and that our tendency is to give up easily. Now, the fact that he has to command the Colossians in this, the fact that he has to tell them to be devoted to it, is actually very encouraging to me because it means I'm not the only one who struggles with this and that it's something that has to be commanded because it doesn't come naturally. It's not surprising to God. Uh, and, and, of course, that's good because then I, then I can uh, kind of cut uh, the apologies from the beginning of my prayer for how poor my prayer is, right? God knows this already. He's made provision for it. Uh, he just wants us to pray. We don't need to apologize for how poor we are in doing it. So be devoted to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. And then he kind of gives two, two other descriptions of, of what this devotion is going to look like. He says, keep alert in it or be watchful. As some other translations have it, be watchful. Um, the idea of being alert or being watchful probably means something like giving careful attention to it. So give careful attention to prayer. And then uh, with an attitude of thanksgiving... I think the, the ESV might uh, say this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So I think um, this here is, is added, if I'm, yeah, an attitude. If you look in your, if you have a, a dead tree Bible, um, you'll see that the, the edit, did somebody get that? One person got that. You guys, yeah, okay. It just wasn't that funny, so that's okay. Um, an ad- okay, <laughs> an attitude of thanksgiving. So an attitude is in italics. That means it's added by the translators to, to make sense of the passage. I don't know that that's necessary here to add an attitude. I think you can just say, keep alerting it with thanksgiving, and I think it makes perfect sense. Um, why thankfulness here? He's, he's mentioned thankfulness over and over again. We saw last week there was three verses in a row in chapter 3, where he said, and be thankful, and be thankful, and be thankful. Why here? Well, part of the reason, I think, is because thankfulness fuels prayer. Thankless people don't pray. If we're thankful, it means we know that we've received something, many things that we don't deserve but have been freely given. Thankfulness shows that we understand both our neediness and God's gracious provision. And so if, if I'm not thankful to God for what He's given and thus expectant that He will continue to provide, then I'm not going to pray. Or if I don't really think that I need what He's given me, I'm probably not going to pray because I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. Now when we put... Uh, this idea of keeping alert or watchfulness and thanksgiving together, we may get a better picture of what Paul's getting at. If we're paying attention to our prayer, uh, if we're paying attention to what we're asking and how God is answering, we may well find ourselves more thankful because we see more regularly how God has answered our prayers. Some people keep a journal or a diary for their prayers, uh, or they either record whole prayers, they write out their prayers, which I think is a very helpful discipline. If nothing else, it keeps you focused. Or perhaps people just make notes about what they pray for or uh, how they see God answer those prayers. Uh, In a a little book called Prayer by a guy named Ole Hallesby, who was a Norwegian uh, minister, uh, he, he tells this story about a missionary's wife who made a habit of writing down everything that she was asked to pray for uh, in a little notebook and then would pray for each one of them in turn. And as soon as she was given something new to pray for, she'd write it down. And when the Lord answered her prayers, as far as she could understand or tell, she would cross out the entries in the book and write in the margin, Thanks. Now, if you have a a journal like that with lots of things that you've prayed for 
and lots of things crossed off and thanks next to them. Every time you open that book, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness, right? I'm saying this is, this is not the way to pray. You don't need to do this. But is there something you can do to cultivate an awareness of God's faithfulness in prayer, to remember that He's faithful to answer prayer. Because I can tell you, when I see him answer prayer and answer prayer in some really specific ways, it's an encouragement to me to persevere in prayer, to continue to be devoted to prayer. So something like that would be a healthy practice for us, especially if we have difficulty remembering what to pray for or what we have prayed for, which is one for me. It's like uh, uh, something will happen. I'm like, oh, well, that's, that's wonderful, and I'll forget. Oh, yeah, I prayed for that a while back. Kind of forgot about it. The more we can remember those things, uh, the more thanksgiving we can give to God and glory that we can give to God and glory that God receives because we worship Him for it. So, that's prayer in general. Then verse 3, he's going to move and he's going to talk about um, the the specific kind of prayer that he's looking uh, for here. Verses 3 and 4, he's going to say, Pray for our gospel ministry. This is the specific content that he's asking the Colossians to pray for. Um, and note that what Paul asks for here um, is uh, for uh, the, 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 the advance of the gospel. Because he also talks about being in chains here. Okay? So he says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been imprisoned. I think other translations would say, for which also I am in chains. I think it's interesting that rather than asking that the Colossians would pray for his release, from prison, he asked that they would pray that he would make the most of the opportunity that he's been given uh, for the gospel. So he asks really for, for two things here in praying for this gospel ministry. Number one, he asked that God would open up to us a door for the word. And two, uh, that that they might make it, that is the word, clear in the way I ought to speak. So when he says, pray, pray for us, we're in prison. What do you want us to pray for when you're in prison, Paul? Well, I want you to pray that God would open a door for the word, um, that, that God would create opportunities for the gospel in the midst of these circumstances, right? Only God can create these opportunities. Only God can open the hearts of men and women to understand and respond to the gospel. Let's think of Lydia in Acts 16. Lydia was a worshiper of God. She was listening to Paul as Paul's talking about the gospel, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken by Paul. Paul will use the, the, the terminology of a door being opened talk about opportunities for ministry, he talks about in the end of 1 Corinthians, he says, I, I want to come to you, uh, but a wide door has opened for ministry, uh, so I feel like I st- need to stay here. Paul says, uh, pray that God would give us opportunities so that we might speak forth the mystery of Christ. We talked previous lessons about what the mystery of Christ is. This the content of the gospel, but specifically that uh, in, in, um, in Colossians and Ephesians has this element of that the Gentiles are being brought into the people of God uh, because uh, God is creating this new people centered around the Messiah, Jesus. It's something that was hidden in the Old Testament and is now being revealed. So pray that we can speak forth the gospel for which I've been imprisoned. Which, that's interesting. I'm in prison for speaking, for preaching the gospel. 
So pray that God would give me more opportunities to preach the gospel, which is what got me here in the first place. It's a commitment. And then that I make, uh, make it clear in the way I ought to speak. So he says, pray that I have opportunities and pray that when those opportunities come, that I can make the gospel clear. Right? Just because we have an opportunity to share the gospel doesn't mean that we necessarily do it well. That doesn't mean that there's a specific technique that we're supposed to follow, but we ought to try to make the gospel as clear as possible to those to whom we can speak. We need to speak in such a way that people understand what we're talking about, which means that every so often we need to rethink the way that we talk about the gospel. The gospel doesn't change, right? The truth of God's word doesn't change, but the way that we go about interacting with people on it does, because there are ways that the gospel was preached in uh, the 5th century and the 15th century that don't necessarily work the same way in the 21st century. It's not because the gospel's changed, it's because the world has changed. And we need to think through ways that we can speak about it differently. Same thing when you go overseas and you interact with people from different cultures and different backgrounds, there are different assumptions at work there than there are here in America. And so we have to, to do the work of how do, we, how do we make this good news that doesn't change clear in a way that uh, people are going to understand it. Now you may think, well, you know, praying for opportunities and making it clear and, 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 and doing the, some of the hard work of of contextualizing the gospel to the audience that you're talking to, saying, I don't know, I'm not sure if I can do that. A good place to start would be to pray for clarity. Pray, like Paul says, pray that we can make it clear, right? That doesn't mean that we also don't do the work of of trying to make it as clear as possible or that we don't study so that we can make it clear, but it means that we can start with praying for it. That's something you can do. Notice that it's here, it's Paul. Paul asks that they would pray that he would make it clear. Paul wrote the Bible, right? And he's saying, pray that I can make it clear the way I ought to speak. Now, interestingly, Peter would then say at the end of one of his letters, there are things in some of Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Maybe Paul needed to pray for clarity in that regard. So, but if Paul had to pray for it, then, then we do too. Pray, pray that we can make it clear. So devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for gospel opportunities that God would open a door for the Word, that He would make the Word clear. So our interaction with outsiders begins not in interacting with outsiders, but interacting with God about them, right? You've probably heard Tom, and I don't think it's unique to him, say, before you talk to men about God, talk to God about men. Then verse 5, so be devoted to prayer, devote yourselves to prayer. Verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. So literally this is uh, this idea of conduct yourselves this is uh, walk. So he's used this terminology before in the letter. Uh, talk about your way of life, your, your way of conduct. So walk in wisdom toward those who are not Christians. This is an assumption that we're going to be living our lives and interacting with people on a regular basis who are not Christians. And so because of that, we are to live with wisdom. And what does he mean by here, conducting yourselves with wisdom? You'd say, well, living, living with wisdom could just mean reading Proverbs over and over again and trying to live wisely in that regard, and that certainly would be a good thing to do. But I think here, as he follows this, this command, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders with this participle, right, this I-N-G word, that usually will point back to something to, to modify it or to explain it. 
So what does it look like to conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders? Well, it's making the most of every opportunity. So, so using this God-given wisdom to make the most uh, of the opportunities that you've been praying for for the gospel, right? So as you have opportunities to uh, interact with people, uh, conducting yourselves in such a way that those opportunities are not going to slip away. So do your best to live in such a way in obedience to God that you don't unnecessarily give people a reason to hate Christians. I mean, it's one thing if you're looked down on because as a Christian you're not in lockstep with all the prevailing opinions of the culture. We're never going to be loved by society because uh, we, uh, like, like Jesus says, I came into the world and the world hated me because I testified to it that its deeds were evil, right? So we're never going to be loved because we say we think what you're doing is wrong. But there's ways that we interact with people and it's, they don't hate us because we say what, what we do is wrong. They hate us because we're arrogant jerks about it, right? And, and that's something we have to, we can tell the truth and still be respectful and loving and wise in the way that we interact with people that doesn't unnecessarily give offense to people. I'm fine putting the stumbling block of the gospel in front of people and having them stumble over Christ, right? If you hate this, it's not that you hate me or anything. It's because you hate what Christ is telling you. But if I'm doing things, if I'm interacting with people in such a way, if I'm not living wisely and making the most of my opportunities, but rather I'm more concerned about winning an argument with somebody to prove that they're wrong and, and I'm right, then I'm actually wasting an opportunity that God's given me. Right? So we conduct ourselves with, with wisdom. Then verse 6, let your speech always be with grace. So pray for opportunities for the gospel. Live wisely so that you're making the most of every opportunity for the gospel. And speak graciously. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that, here's why, you will know how you should respond each person. So if we live with wisdom in the way we interact with outsiders and God grants us opportunities and we're going to make the most of those opportunities, we need to speak not only with clarity, but also with grace, right? Just because we're speaking clearly doesn't mean we're speaking graciously. We might tell the truth at the top of our lungs and not receive any kind of hearing because we're not doing it with grace. We're not demonstrating the reality of the gospel with our words, even as we proclaim the reality of the gospel, the content of what we're saying. So let your speech always be with grace as if it were seasoned with salt. Um, this, of course, doesn't mean that we never say things that are hard or unpopular. Then we would not be able to actually share the gospel. Um, but we're to do so with winsomeness and tact. It's simply telling it like it is is not always the best way to get your point across. In fact, I think oftentimes it's a pretty bad way to get your point across. The idea of being seasoned with salt is a metaphor. This is actually a very common metaphor in, in, in uh, Jewish literature um, to describe. I thought this was really interesting. It's to describe speech that's interesting and engaging. You might think, well, if I'm supposed to interact with people who, uh, who don't know Christ and I'm supposed to have my speech be seasoned with salt, that is, I'm supposed to have my speech is supposed to be, that the way I'm interacting with them about the gospel should be interesting and engaging, you might think, I'm not that interesting or engaging. Because that's what I think. I think I'm relatively boring. But the gospel is interesting and engaging for those who have ears to hear. Right? 
And then the, the, the purpose for which we do this, that we speak graciously, is so that we will know how to respond to each person. And I think w- what I want you to notice here is that each person may have a unique response, right? We speak graciously, we're engaging, we're winsome, so that we can respond appropriately to every person, which may mean that not every person gets the exact same response. This requires a little bit more work on our part than just repeating a rote gospel presentation. It means we actually need to be paying attention and having a conversation with somebody because what one person may be struggling with in the gospel is what, you know, not the same thing that another person may be struggling with. Or, or that, that truth of the gospel that is especially relevant to that person where they are in their situation may not be the same one that this other person needs to hear about. And so that our, our uh, gospel sharing with outsiders uh, should be just as much about us listening and processing through the gospel with them and what's appropriate for their particular situation uh, than it is just repeating kind of these rote presentations. You've probably heard, especially if you've been to any of Austin's evangelism seminars, Francis Schaeffer, who had a, a, an evangelistic and apologetics ministry for many years in Switzerland, uh, said that if, if he was given the opportunity to sit down with somebody for one hour to talk about the gospel, he'd spend the first 55 minutes asking them questions and listening. And he says, after that, I would have an idea, a better idea of how I could respond to them in such a way that the gospel is going to meet them where they're at, rather than starting off by just saying, let me tell you about all of this stuff and not knowing where that person is to begin with. So every person is different. There's no one size fits all. So in our interactions with outsiders, start with prayer. We're devoted to prayer. We pray for opportunities. And we are diligent to live wisely so that as those opportunities come, we make the most of them. And we speak graciously and in such a way that's appropriate to every opportunity. And then Paul moves into the close of his letter, much like the beginning of Paul's letters, we have a tendency to read really quickly through the close of Paul's letters, right? So we have a tendency to to read, you know, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, we're like, great, 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 wonderful. Let's get to the actual stuff where it starts. Now, we've talked about that because we've studied a couple of Paul's letters, and we see there's actually quite a bit of really wonderful stuff in those introductions that we need to pay attention to. And the same thing is true in, uh, in the closing of the letters. Um, so I think one of the things that we notice, and I think I talked about this when we studied 2 Timothy as well, one of the things that we see as we look at the close of Paul's letters is that it, it's a reminder that these are, these are real documents, real letters written to real people in a real place, right? If I was making this up, if I was making up uh, a religion, I'm like, I need to create some foundation documents for this religion, uh, and some of them are going to be these, these uh, theological treatises and, and uh, books of ethics on how people are supposed to live, I probably wouldn't waste a bunch of time saying, say hi to all of these fake people for me, right? Um, that's not the way that ancient literature would have worked, right? Myths didn't have stuff like this. Right? Th- this, is, this is real. These are real people in real situations. So it reminds us that just, just how rooted in history, in space-time history, Christianity is, right? This is not just in the realm of, uh, of kind of our our minds and spirituality and the way, you know, it's, it's not just uh, ethics or a system of belief. This stuff really happened. 
So Paul says, and I'll bring the letter to a close, as to all of my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord, will bring you information. Right, so Tychicus is going to update the Colossians on Paul's situation. He hasn't spent a lot of time talking about himself. He's in prison. We know that. He said that, but he hasn't said a whole lot more about it. This guy Tychicus has been mentioned in a couple of Paul's uh, letters, uh, and, and he's called uh, beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow bond servant in the Lord. Um, there are worse ways to be remembered by history. Right? We don't know much about Tychicus. Other than in the couple places where he's mentioned, Paul talks about him like this. I think that's a good legacy. Because Paul will also talk about other people in different ways. Like, Alexander the coppersmith did me great hard. The Lord will repay him for his deeds. Not as good of a way to be remembered. This is, if, if this was on my gravestone... I think I would be satisfied if this could authentically represent who I was in life. I think that's a worthwhile life. So he's going to bring information about that. Tychicus is probably carrying the letter. He's probably the courier. Right? And so uh, he's going to uh, tell him about what's going on. He says, For I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances. So he's going to bring you the information. This is why I sent him, so that you can know about the circumstances that we're in and that he may encourage your hearts. So he's going to bring you word about us and he's going to bring encouragement. So he's going to inform them about everything that's going on with Paul and we kind of wish Paul would have just written it down so that we wouldn't have to guess at some of these things. Right? Well, Paul, why couldn't you have just written an extra page, unburdened Tychicus and said, Tychicus, listen, you don't need to worry about telling them these things. I'll just write it down. Right? We didn't do that. And I think something to notice about this is both Tychicus and Paul uh, have vital roles to play in God's plan. Paul's role was to plant churches and write letters. Tychicus's job was to carry letters and encourage people. Both were vital to the cause of the gospel. Without Tychicus being faithful to what his gifting and role was in God's plan, the Colossians would not have gotten Colossians. So we're all gifted differently, and we're all going to serve differently within the body of Christ. And, and Paul, I think, would be the first to, to say that uh, his role is no more glorious or worthwhile than, than Tychicus's role in God's economy. And second, so he mentions, so Tychicus is coming, and then, and with him is coming Onesimus. We talked about him a little bit last week. Onesimus is the runaway slave who became a Christian, we think through Paul, uh, ran away from Philemon in Colossae, and now is being sent back. So these are the two guys that are coming with the letter. Now, as soon as the church would have heard this about Onesimus, expecting, and with him is coming Onesimus, the runaway slave, right? But he didn't say that. He says, with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. He's one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. He doesn't say much more about Onesimus here. He's going to go into a lot more detail on it in uh, in Philemon, the book of Philemon. And these the, those two letters are probably... Uh, written and sent together. Uh, and so we're not going to go into a ton about Onesimus here, but I think it's, it's, it's wonderful that Paul here calls him our faithful and beloved brother. Puts him on the same footing as Tychicus, right? He's our beloved brother and a faithful servant. 
this runaway slave. New life in Christ uh, smooths out those distinctions, just like he said in Colossians 3.11, that, that in Christ there is no longer slave or free. There's Christ, and Christ is all. So details about the messengers, verses 7 to 9, they're coming. And then 10 to 14 are these final greetings. And so he's going to greet people. Uh, he's going to do, there's three, uh, three of his Jewish colleagues are going to uh, send them greetings. And then three of his Gentile colleagues are going to send them greetings. Uh, Greetings. So Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. So Aristarchus is apparently in prison with Paul. Um, it's probably not the first time in, in uh, Aristarchus is actually mentioned in Acts. And I want to say it may be Acts 19, but it's uh, slipping my mind right now. Um, but he was caught up with Paul and there was a riot. So I think it might have been during the riot in Ephesus. He's caught up with Paul and gets you know dragged uh, away with Paul. So Aristarchus, um, uh, kind of the unlucky guy who's with Paul in the wrong place at the wrong time at least twice and uh, gets thrown in prison with him. He sends greetings. And also Barnabas's cousin Mark, that's John Mark from Acts. He's the guy who w- went with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey and abandoned them to the point where on his second missionary journey, Paul said, we're not taking him with us. And that led to this split between Paul and Barnabas. But here, there's apparently been reconciliation because he's now with Paul. And Paul says, you received instructions about him. If he comes, welcome him. I wonder if Paul has to say that just in case they had heard about what happened and said, listen, we worked everything out. It's cool. Just welcome him in. Everything's great. When we studied 2 Timothy, we saw that at the end of 2 Timothy, he actually mentions Mark again and says to uh, Timothy, get Mark and bring him. He's very useful to me for ministry. We're going to come back to Mark in just a second. Um, So Aristarchus, Mark greets you, and also Jesus, who's called Justice. Probably called Justice because if you're a Christian and your name was already Jesus, you probably needed to go by something else at that point. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, that is, who are, who are Jewish. So these are the only guys with me who are, who are Jewish, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So those are the three Jewish colleagues, and then greetings from his three Gentile colleagues. Epaphras, we've talked about already a little bit before, he's probably the guy that planted the church in Colossae. Right? Epaphras, who's one of your number, so he's a Colossian. He's a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He sends you his greetings. And he's always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. This word perfect is the same idea as mature. And so you have this, even at the end of the letter, you see that uh, so much of it being uh, built around Paul's desire for the Colossians' growth and spiritual maturity. And Epaphras is here, and he's praying constantly for you that you would become mature. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So again, this three cities that are real close together that Epaphras may well have been the one who planted the church in kind of all of those places. Um, And I wonder if if Paul has to say this, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you because if he started the church and then he went away and hasn't come back, maybe they're wondering, does does he care about us? Is he coming back to us? Or did he move on to something bigger and better? So Paul's assuring them that he's praying regularly for you. I, I testify to you that he has a deep concern for all of you. 
which is what's leading him to pray. And then Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Right? So Luke, the guy who wrote Luke and Acts, is with Paul. He sends you his greetings. And also Demas. Now this is just, just a quick um, note. Mark started poorly, abandoning Paul and Barnabas on the missionary journey, and ends up uh, finishing well. Right? He ends up being useful to Paul for ministry. Demas here sends his greetings. He's working with Paul. But at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, Demas is in love with the present world and has abandoned me. One of the commentaries I was reading made mention of this. I thought this was good. Mark didn't start well. Demas didn't finish well. The lesson we can learn here is that a good finish is more important than a good start. It's sad. It's tragic to see here evidence of somebody who was who was a part of this ministry for the gospel and then ended up abandoning it in the end. A good finish is more important than a good start. Then verses 15 to 17 are the final instructions for the Colossians. Just some interesting things to, to observe here. It says, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. So he's already mentioned, so he's talking to the Colossians. He says, now make sure you, 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 you greet the, the Christians who are in Laodicea as well from me. And also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Now there's debate over what that, what that means. Does that mean that um, that was one particular church in Colossae? Does that mean that that was a particular church in Laodicea? Uh, why would this particular church, this house church, this is probably what the churches looked like at the time, or house churches, why does this particular church get singled out? Well, we can't say anything definitively about it, um, but I wonder if since he had just mentioned the, the burden that Epaphras had for not only the Colossians, but the Laodiceans and those in Heropolis, I wonder if this is specifically mentioned because this is the church in Heropolis. Maybe because that's the only one there. Again, that's not, I mean, don't take that to the bank. That's just more of a, I wonder. I wonder if that's why. Nympha's probably a wealthy woman who has a house large enough to have a, a house church in it. He says, when this letter is read among you, so he's talking about Colossians, this letter of Colossians, when this letter is read among you, also have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. So make sure this letter gets sent to them as well. And you, for your part, read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Wouldn't we love to have that? Right? Paul wrote a, a letter, a separate letter to the Laodiceans. Or at least that's what it, it looks like here. Interestingly, though, it, do, it doesn't say my letter to the Laodiceans. It says my letter that's coming from Laodicea. It is possible that this letter is the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is uh, very, very similar in a lot of ways to Colossians. We've kind of seen that as we've gone, that there's a lot of similarities. And um, Ephesians is often regarded, actually, as what's called a circular letter. And so it's a letter that was, that was uh, kind of like, to, for lack of a better term, a form letter that was sent to multiple churches. And so the book of Ephesians as we have it is... Uh, addressed in its salutation to the Ephesians, but that may have been just one of the copies of it that was sent, this being more like kind of a general uh, treatise to the, all the churches rather than dealing with a specific issue. And I think if you read Ephesians, you see that while he's dealing with some, so, some big theological and practical issues, it doesn't have the same kind of 
really specific uh, uh, situational applications as Colossians does. It's not talking about here's what's happening in your neck of the woods. Here's what you're dealing with right now. It's a lot more general. So it's possible that this was a letter that was passed around the churches in that region and that it was going to be coming from Laodicea. Again, we don't know that that's the case, um, but it's, it's very possible. And then 17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. So the last command, tell Archippus to pay close attention to his ministry. We don't know much about this. Archippus may have been Philemon's son. He's mentioned at the beginning of the book of Philemon as somebody who's in Philemon's household. Um, so he's one of the guys that that letter is addressed to. So it's quite possible that he's uh, Philemon's son or another member of his household. He's called, uh, there he's called a fellow soldier. So evidently he's involved in some kind of ministry. We don't know what this ministry is, but it's important enough that Paul uh, is going to say something about it in a letter to the whole church. He's going to say something to him specifically, this personal command in a letter to the whole church. He does so in a really public way. So again, this is just sort of my uh, interpretive wondering. I wonder if Archippus was the lead pastor of the Colossian church in Epaphras' absence. I, I wonder, right? Epaphras, the church planner and leader, he was with Paul, so while he was gone, somebody was needing to, to lead the church and teach the church. And so, uh, for, for Paul to have said all of this publicly, uh, this make sure uh, that you say to Archippus, take heed, that is, pay close attention to that ministry that you received from the Lord. But he didn't specify what that is. One of the reasons, I mean, it could be that nobody else needs to know, because Archippus knows, and that's all that matters. Or it could be that everybody knew exactly what that ministry was, because he was the pastor. And so for it to be so public, uh, I think may also be interesting because he could have, he actually, he could have written something like this in Philemon where it was to, to a, a, a household, but he, he does it in this, in this public letter and maybe not only so that Archippus would hear the word, but that everybody in the church would hear it also so that Maybe Paul didn't write this to reprove Archippus, like he's in danger of slacking off. Make sure you tell him to take heed to that ministry and fulfill it. It may be that Paul wrote it to encourage him and to get the church to support him in that task. Right? If Archippus is the guy who's acting as the pastor, but he's the guy that followed the guy that brought the gospel there, right? He's, he's following the Hall of Fame quarterback, right? Nobody wants to be the next guy to play. So Paul specifically says, Archippus has received this ministry in the Lord. And he's to be careful to fulfill it. So it'd be very similar to something that Paul says in 1 Timothy and Titus, where he makes statements about how Timothy and Titus are to carry out their ministry. And, um, and, but those letters are read to the churches as well, and so it's not like he's just saying, now, Timothy, make sure you do this. Don't tell anybody else I'm telling you this, but you need to be encouraged. These letters are being read to the churches, and Paul tells Timothy, let no one look down on you for your youth. Right? That's not just to say, Timothy, you need to make sure that nobody looks down on you for youth. That's read in the church. That's also Paul in an oblique way saying, by the way, everybody in the church, don't look down on Timothy for his youth. So I wonder if something similar is happening here. Again, I'm not going to build any kind of doctrine on that. That's more of a supposal. Uh, but uh, it's something to think about. And then verse 18, Paul ends. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own 
hands. Remember, at the very beginning, we talked about how, how the letter is written from Paul and Timothy. Here we see this is what Paul is writing with his own hand. Probably means Timothy has written, actually penned the letter up until now. And now Paul picks up the pen and writes this. I write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment, by which probably means pray for me. Grace be with you. And also with you. And that's Colossians. So, a couple things um, to, to wrap up. Uh, you've got the outline, you've got the questions. Um, a couple things just in, in general. Um, remember, when we started the study, one of the things I asked you was be thinking about not just what you're going to learn as we start studying together, but what you're going to do with what you've learned, right? That our goal in studying the Bible is not just to get more information and so be able to say, I know what Colossians is about, or I know what this obscure phrase means, or something like that. As much fun as that is, it's for us to be transformed by the gospel, and for us then, as people being transformed by the gospel, to help others follow Jesus as well. And so, now that you've been through the book of Colossians, what will you do with it? Would you consider praying about who God might have you read the book of Colossians with? You've been through it. You have a fallible outline of it. Would you sit down and, and read through the book of Colossians with somebody, a Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. Because the single most important thing that we can do as uh, people who are seeking to make disciples is to read the Bible with people. Say, I, I don't know enough to disciple somebody. Great, none of us do, right? Jesus does. And so the only thing is we do as we disciple people is we come alongside them with the Word of God and say, let's see what the Word of God has to say. And we let the Holy Spirit disciple them, right? And we're there to watch and to, to guide as that happens. So think about, pray about, who, who might God have you sit down with and just work through the book of Colossians together? Maybe it doesn't need to be Colossians, but you've spent the last three months studying it, so it seems appropriate. And if you want some more... Um, help on just kind of like, what does that even look like to sit down with somebody and read the Bible with them? This is a great little book, one-to-one -one Bible reading. We have some copies in the bookstore. Um, it's a short little book, and it just is very, very practical about what it looks like to sit down with somebody and to read through the Bible with them as this tool for discipleship, because uh, we believe that the Word of God does the work of God, right? The Word of God is what the Holy Spirit uses to transform people, to be, help them become more like Jesus. So the most important thing that we can do to disciple people is to read the Bible with them. So I want you to think about what can you do uh, now that you have studied Colossians. Don't just file your notes. Who can you disciple with it? Who can you read through Colossians with? And then in the spring... Uh, we're going to study. We're going to study two things in the spring. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a little a little break from just doing the verse by verse exposition. We're going to read the book Gospel Fluency uh, together. Uh, it'll be on the schedule. It says eight weeks. It may be seven weeks, depending on on what we do. And actually, we're not actually reading the book. There's a little workbook, a little handbook that goes with it. So we're going to use. That one of the reasons we're doing that is because kind of on the on the on the heels of Colossians, Colossians being this this really uh, Christ-centered, Christ-exalting book in really explicit ways, right? The whole Bible is Christ-exalting, but this one uh, uh, just screams the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. One of the things we want to do is say, okay, following up on that, so what does it actually look like to bring Christ's supremacy and sufficiency? into our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. What does that actually look like? And then how do we do that with others? And then how do we do that with those who are outside the church? Uh, and so the, this study will, will help us walk through uh, 
uh, some of those things. Uh, and then when we're done with that, uh, so that's, it, it works out nicely that that will run up right up to Easter. And then we have an off week for Easter. And then after that, we'll do four weeks through the book of Ruth. Uh, and then that'll be it for the spring. And then we'll come back and I already have an idea of what I want to do in the fall. But I'm not going to spoil that for you yet. So, and that's it. We're done. So thank you for coming. I hope this has been helpful uh, to you. That's not me looking for praise and affirmation. I really hope that the Lord has used, has used His Word to, uh, to transform you, to challenge you, to shape you, and that He'll continue to do so as we go. Um, so I took a little bit more time tonight. Please forgive me for that. And um, now you can head to your, head to your groups. All right. Merry Christmas.